and welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Return of the King one oh no at a time. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. I'm Norman Mitchell. And joining us uh, this week and, um, well, today and this week, um, we have <laughs> Father David Mowry, who is uh, new to the show. Hello. Hello, Cassandra Norman. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I apologize because there's like not a lot that happens in this week but we'll get to why you wanted to be on here uh eventually oh, uh, are, are <laughs> you kidding we, we've got marching we've got inspections we've got broken yes. rocks we've got volcanoes <laughs> exploding it's a very exciting week i don't okay, know what you could well... possibly be talking about <laughs> inspection um but today we're talking about minute 191 which starts with uh the I don't know. What does it start Orcish with? Orcish captain? Orcish captain. Um, he surveys his troops and just says, don't you know we're at war? Um, and it ends with Sam saying, oh no. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> Look, well, it was a surprise to Sam that they were at war, I suppose. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no, Mr. Frodo. We've gotten ourselves involved in a military expedition. <laughs> <laughs> so the... The first thing that sticks out to me uh, this minute, which is something I wasn't conscious of until the week this movie we had Jodorowsky on, is that the good guys are traveling left to right in that insert shot, oh, and the yeah. bad guys are traveling right to left. Nice. That's which cool. is just a thing that movies do. Yeah, well, there's a lot of contrast, right? Because the the armies of the West are almost blown out. There's so much light and so much exposure in the lens and the cinematography. Everything almost seems washed out. And in Mordor, everything is really dark and grim. Mm -hmm. And there's that contrast between uh, the orcs uh, in the cinematography from the armies of the West, like in their marching uh, uh, formations, the orcs are all jumbled up. And the armies of the West are very orderly and, and marching. And you, you imagine that Aragorn has organized everyone alphabetically as they've <laughs> gotten into ranks and files. Because right. if we're going to be a distraction, we're going to be an ordered distraction, Josh darn it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Aragorn is first, A. Well, oh. Of course. <laughs> That's funny. Who else is going to lead the armies? Look at how handsome I am. Who else is going to do it? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, he's he's claimed his kingdom now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He has. He's got his he's got his Gondor outfit on. Yeah, he's he's wearing the white tree of Gondor. I mean, it's totally legit. Clothes make the man. I I love the the Gondorian outfit for Aragorn. It's so good. I like this Gondorian outfit for Aragorn. Oh yeah, no, the, the coronation outfit, outfit is outfit. different. Yeah. <laughs> no, the the, mm-hmm. the battle outfit for for Aragorn and. For Gondor's great. I think that's like peak Aragorn yeah, for me. Hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's Aragorn as he truly is supposed to be, and then Strider is who he is before that, and peak Strider is Bree. I like. I don't know. I like. I like this outfit specifically though because it is still kind of like a transition from like kingly Aragorn to like gritty ranger Aragorn. I would call this the the outfit that he wears on the march to the Black Gate pretty kingly. Yeah, but it's still kind of like mm-hmm. I don't. He's not as um put together as he is in the coronation. You know what I mean? Well, he's a little distracted because Sauron was just like, "Your girl's dying." Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? It's the difference between like date night and prom night, right? 
in date mm. night, you dress up to look nice, but on prom night, you are so dressed up that you you don't look like yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's the difference between Aragorn here and Aragorn at Coronation. Like here, Aragorn, he's, he's going on a date. He's getting ready for his, his big show and he's a little nervous, but he's got his nice livery on. He's got the nice white tree on. And then for the Coronation, I just goes way overboard, really trying to impress everyone. And all the chaperones are just shaking their heads like, oh, that Aragorn, he tries so hard. He's a good kid. <laughs> that crown's just a step too far. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> This little tiara. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. Vigo Mortensen just doesn't look that great with the long hair swept out of his face. When he has short hair, it's fine. But when he has long hair and it's swept out of his face, it just doesn't look right on Vigo. I don't know what it is mm. about the way his face mm. is shaped. Now, is it the fact that he's on horseback that helps him as well? Because I, I think there's, I think there's just an air of nobility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just there's something noble about uh, a man on a horse. Like, oh yeah, I'll follow that guy. Look at him. He's on a horse. Amazing. Right. Right, just physically above you, more imposing. Mm. Mm -hmm. But uh, and none of the orcs are on horseback because horses and orcs don't get along. Is that well, the, the orcs would horse? just as soon eat a horse as ride it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I love the variety in the design of the orcs, and we talked about this weeks ago and got way, way out there off topic about it. Um, but I like the the difference in how different orcs look, and I absolutely love this noseless orc commander guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's just look at her inspiration. He has had a rough life. That that guy has had a rough life. Yeah. He's, he's got the scars all over his face. Someone bit his nose clean off. And so <laughs> I think part of this is just, he's just jealous of that other captain. Cause he's sporting the captain sporting those jangly little nose rings in both nostrils. And yeah. just rubbing it in this inspector's face the entire time. Yeah. But this it, this is an orc design I really like. The prosthetic also is some of the best looking orc prosthetics. Both of the orcs that we get close-ups on in this movie look really good. In this minute look really good. But this noseless guy, like this prosthetic is super convincing. Yeah. And this, uh, the person playing him is named uh, Phil Greed. And... They don't call out specifically what other orcs he's played in the commentary, mm -hmm. but I am almost positive this guy also played the orc that says yes <laughs> to when uh, Saruman wants Fangorn Forest cut down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm. That feels like forever ago. It was a very long time ago. <laughs> For us, it was over a year ago. Yes. We're on minute 191. You could be forgiven for forgetting some details from that far back. <laughs> But yeah, I think this is a great now my aesthetic. my question is with 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 this with this inspector though. All right, so the orcs are having an inspection. What kind of standards do the orcs have to meet that would merit an inspection? What is this guy going to call the orcs out on? Oh, those boots aren't polished, are they? That's not up to standards. Drop and give me fifty. Oh, what about you? Ah, oh, you got your nose still on your face. That's not up to standards. You drop and give me a hundred. <laughs> what is the, the, the handbook that Sauron makes sure right. all of his orcs get to make sure they're all applying to the, the high standard that no doubt the armies of darkness have to adhere to? I, the only standard seems to be uh, supporting yourself on your own two feet. <laughs> right, because he is, he is noticing that Frodo's having a hard time. Like, oh, that's yeah. not good. <laughs> you. 
Do you think that it's um it's not as much of, of an inspection as, as it is like a random um like punishment like right. we're going to instill fear in these guys so we're just going to pick someone at random and beat them up? Right. The beatings will continue until morale yeah. improves. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, we're talking about Mordor here. I'd absolutely believe it. They're just random, like, uh, you, you, yeah, you, you're going to get eaten today. Well, what? But I didn't do anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but the Nazgul's come hungry, here. so come on. Yeah. <laughs> how do, and how do you get that job? Is it, is it, has he retired into this position? He used to be a forefront soldier, <laughs> but after he lost his nose, he, he just couldn't hack it in battle anymore. It's like, you know what? Let's make Jerry an inspector. He's right. really good with the troops. He really knows how to build morale. He's really great at picking the guy that you would least expect would get eaten. Let's make him an inspector. <laughs> and that way we can keep him involved in the war effort because we'd hate to lose someone so dedicated. Right now he's just riding a desk <laughs> in this orc encampment. Yeah, this, just waits for yeah, He's comfort. reliving his glory right now. Yeah, this this is a total power trip because normally he's in some little cubby office somewhere deep in the, the teeth of Mordor. And this is his chance to shine. He's back on the field, getting into it with the soldiers, reminding himself what it was like, you know, probably just a year ago when he was still fighting. <laughs> yeah, but he feels tired and over the hill. Yeah. Well, I mean, these, these are, I mean, I, I have no idea how long orcs normally live, but I don't get the sense they have a very long life naturally, yeah. much less their occupational hazards. Right. Dungeons and Dragons, their lifespan's like 50 max. Yeah. 40. It's very short. I think that's generous mm -hmm. for Mordor orcs. <laughs> yeah, that's generous for Mordor orcs. Yeah. They, they probably have an average life expectancy of uh, 16. Oof. I don't think they live very long. Short, brutal lives. Oh, they're burning the candle at both ends. Well, they're living longer than Urukai, though. Yeah, that's true. Not a single Urukai is older than six months. <laughs> they grow up so fast. And a whole lot of them die. I uh, I like the makeup on Frodo's neck when we see the uh, how the ring has been weighing on him. I think it's 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 not overboard, which I think is really important for an effect like that in a movie hmm. to show the weight of the ring. It just kind of looks like a bad sunbird with this pale line. Yeah. At at first, I didn't like this uh, because I am a big fan of the books. And mm -hmm. I always understood from the original story that the weight of the ring was more of a, a metaphor for something. But as I looked at this minute and thought about it, I actually like the adaptational choice that's made here because movies are a visual medium. You can't just have Frodo talk about the weight of the ring over and over again. That's going to grate on the audience. This is a great visual way to show that, oh, this is this is bad. Frodo is in a bad way. And the ring is really doing a number on him. And that the chafing of the chain, even if it is forged by elves, is still straining under the weight of the ring here in the land of Sauron. And I like how raw it looks and I like how it helps us understand Frodo's struggle in a very concise visual way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. That's pretty much exactly how I feel about the the visual cues for the weight of the ring in these movies. Because I was the same when I first saw the movies. I was just like, oh, but the, the ring's weight isn't real. It's just in Frodo's head. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, what do you what do you think catches the notice of the inspector? What what is it about Frodo and Sam that draws his eye when you've got all of these really 
scrub orcs around him who are nowhere near close to the code of conduct. What is it about Frodo and Sam specifically, do you think? Um, well, they're much shorter than the rest of them. <laughs> right, be, being a head shorter than everyone around you. a little short to be an orc trooper. Yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe this guy, Jerry, he's been riding a desk for a year. Maybe he's a little more in the mm-hmm. know and understands that Sauron is looking for some halflings. And he's just, what the heck is that? <laughs> Those guys oh, he was, are too small. He, he heard that the... the he heard the scuttlebutt as he was, you know, hanging out at the the coffee pot and like, oh, yeah, oh, the, the big boss. He's looking looking for some halflings like, oh, oh well, what, whatever. I'm just the military inspector. I'm sure that will. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> well, this just is my chance. Ago, <laughs> just a few minutes ago in the movie, uh, Shagrat got away with the mithril oh. shirt to bring back to Baradur. Yeah. Right. So maybe he passed through Jerry's encampment. <laughs> Jerry had to sign off on it. Uh, Shagrat right. came through. Mm-hmm. Right, that's <laughs> contraband. <laughs> I'm gonna need a form for that one. Hold on, let me get it out. I love, I love the idea of the bureaucracy of orcs because he just like pulls out this skin that has a big evil eye on it, and they just stamp a bloody hand on it. Like, all right, that's right. good, and they follow it away with a squish. <laughs> right, and it's just like form G nine. It's just like labeled some awesome random thing. All right, off you go then. Do um do these two orcs have names? Uh, I don't think so. They don't call them out in the commentary. I wasn't really able to find them. They call him an orcish commander. Okay. In the in the commentary. Mm-hmm. But uh, Peter he looks like Peter a Phil Jackson. To me. Yeah, he looks like a Phil. <laughs> P- Peter Jackson talks about this this no nose orc for like two and a half minutes in the commentary. Mm. It's well, it's I, I don't blame him. It's a very impressive work of a piece of makeup. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, then this this minute just ends with Sam saying, oh, no, this has just got to be like top 10 minute breaks so far yeah, in this movie. This yeah. is good. <laughs> it's a really good minute break. <laughs> oh, no. It's such a cliffhanger. What's going to happen next? Poor Sam. Yeah, it's, it's where the uh, the serial would break. Will Sam and Frodo be able to avoid the orc inspection? Right. Tune in yeah, next exactly. week. Tune in next week. <laughs> like an episode or a disc break. It's just right where one would end. Uh-huh. It's perfect. Well, did we um did we have any other notes for this minute? I don't think so. Well, w- one of the things that I I just wanted to to offer when I was uh when I was interested in coming on the show, part of it was because of Tolkien's Catholicism. And yes. yes. I just I just thought I would uh, maybe just sprinkle a, a couple uh, thoughts and notes throughout this week as we go through. I mean, just sure. just to set it up for, first, I think a lot of people, when I talk to to folks about Tolkien, they're often surprised to hear that he was a Roman Catholic. And that's for a number of reasons. Uh, first, we often don't think about the religious life of a lot of our authors because we're so caught up in the worlds that they created that we don't stop and think about the world that helped form them. And I think mm-hmm. for Tolkien, his his Catholicism was really important for a lot of themes that we see throughout the story of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, and it's, it's fascinating even to have Tolkien, uh, a product of Anglican Britain, to even be a Roman Catholic. After mm-hmm. his father died in South Africa, he was living with his brother and mother in England and his mother, Mabel, actually made the decision to become a Roman Catholic in 1900. We don't 
I was doing a little bit of digging through some biographies. We don't have any letters. We don't have any record to indicate what his mother was thinking. This was not an easy choice. This is not something that she did lightly. You know, sitting here 120 years later, we enjoy a kind of laissez-faire, pluralistic kind of vision of religion. Like, oh, if you want to join Mother Church, that's fine. But but in the turn of the century, England, no, no, one does not leave the Anglican Church, uh, especially in England, especially join those papists, those people who have uh, fealty to that foreign potentate, that pope in Rome. So we don't know why, but we know that Mabel took this decision very seriously. Uh, both the the Tolkien side and her family, the Sheffields, had nothing to do with her afterwards. Um, and the the social consequences for Tolkien's family were were very significant. Um, however, Tolkien gained a, a new father figure from Father Francis Xavier Morgan, who was an oratorian father, a, a member of the same group of priests that John Henry Newman, another convert from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, was a part of. Um, uh, St. Francis Xavier was a, uh, excuse me, Father Francis was a huge presence in Tolkien's life. Tolkien would say that he learned charity and forgiveness from this priest and uh, had so much admiration for him that uh, when Tolkien had his first son, he named him John Francis in honor of Father Francis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tolkien, for his part, was a lifelong believer. He was a very devout Catholic. He went to Mass regularly. He had a profound faith in the Eucharist and in the belief of the, the bread and wine becoming the real body and blood of Christ. He committed traditional prayers to memory. Uh, In one of his letters, he said that if you have the Magnificat and the Litany of Loretto, two prayers associated with the, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, he said, if you have these by heart, you never need for words of joy. And uh, of course, Tolkien being Tolkien couldn't help himself. He took traditional Catholic prayers like the Our Father and the Hail Mary and and the the Litany of Loretto, and he translated them into Elvish. He he translated them into (laughs) Kenya, I I think, because he's Tolkien. He just he can't stop himself. He just Mm -hmm. he loves his 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 languages too much. Um, And I think a lot of Tolkien's imagination was deeply informed by his Christian faith and in given expression in Catholicism. I mean, in this minute, we, we've got a shot of Aragorn looking very kingly, and mm-hmm. we've got Frodo who's bearing the weight of the ring. Um, in The Lord of the Rings, I think you have three Christ figures, Aragorn and Frodo, and to them I'd also add Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And a, a way to look at yeah. this is a, a kind of a way of understanding um Jesus in relation to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you had offices of priest, prophet, and king in the the Jewish life. And in Jesus, in a way of understanding the relationship between those Old Testament offices and the new covenant established by Jesus, as Christians, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the priestly office, whose task was to sanctify, was to make holy, the prophetic office, which is the teaching office, how to live rightly, and then the kingly office, how to uh, how we are to be governed, how we're to order our life together well. 
so the, the parallels to these three Christ figures in Lord of the Rings, I think, are, are really deep and rich. You know, in Frodo, we have Christ the priest, because what does Frodo do? Frodo bears the sins of others. He sanctifies the world by taking the burden of the ring on himself, and he makes a sacrifice of himself. Now, of course, Frodo's right. not a perfect character, as we'll see in a, what about another year when you actually get to Mount Doom. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> but but Frodo still willingly and freely takes that burden on, and it, it it wounds him, and he bears that that chafing wound of the ring, and yet. He does that out of love. He does that out of a desire to make the world a better place and to truly sanctify it by bearing that sin away. Mm-hmm. Gandalf is is the prophetic uh, voice. He's the he is Christ the prophet because what does Gandalf do? Yeah. Gandalf goes from place to place to stir people up, to urge them to action. Uh, we see it very clearly with his work with Theoden to get Theoden out of his his decrepitude and back into being who he's supposed to be. And that's what the prophets were tasked with doing in the Old Testament. Uh, They were supposed to go to the people and remind them, you belong to God. You need to change the way that you're living. And so that's what Gandalf does wherever he goes. Now, of course, Gandalf also has the added benefit of coming back from the dead. You always love to see that because (laughs) especially when you're dealing with someone as Catholic. Yes. Yeah. You're dealing with someone as Catholic as Tolkien, like, oh, okay, someone had to come back from the dead eventually. Okay, it's Gandalf. All right, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Aragorn as Christ the King. Uh, Aragorn comes in not at, it comes to his people, it's interesting, not as a warrior only, but also with the hands of a healer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we talked that about that is, uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. The dichotomy mm-hmm. in, right. in Aragorn is both a warrior and a healer. Exactly. And that reflects the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes to do battle, but he does it in a nonviolent way. He comes to confront evil. He comes to do away with the powers of sin and death, but he comes with the hands of a healer. Jesus's ministry of healing, of exorcism, of miracles, of feeding the crowds, uh, demonstrate a kingly care for the people. Uh, in scripture, Jesus looks upon the vast crowd and his heart is moved with pity because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And yeah. uh, a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's what Aragorn is prepared to do. Aragorn is not the hero. He doesn't see himself as the one who's going to defeat Sauron. He is giving Frodo a chance. Aragorn is laying down his life for others. And he is going to exercise his kingly nature in that same kind of sacrificial way. So Tolkien's Catholic imagination allows him to have three very different heroes, Frodo the halfling, Gandalf the wizard, Aragorn the king. And yet each of them reflect that mystery of Christ. And and the story of Jesus has haunted Western literature and Western storytelling from the very beginning. With Tolkien, because he is so aware of that story, he brings it a little more explicitly, I would say, into his story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely with Gandalf. You, Gandalf has a lot, of, oh, yeah. uh, a lot of little things about him that like more explicitly feel like like a priestly character. Like most of the time, oh yeah, I've been referring to. He's Gandalf got a staff being, for crying out loud, right? <laughs> most of the time, I've been referring to Gandalf as being of the uh, like the the oracle archetype, like to get into those sorts of like uh, like Jungian archetype storytelling stuff. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's an oracle. He's there to to guide, but not to lead. 
Um, mm-hmm. And t- touching back on Aragorn, um, the thing about uh, the thing about Aragorn in the book compared to the movie is that Aragorn doesn't take his place as king in the book until the city asks him to do so. Mm-hmm. He sets right. up a tent out outside after the Battle of Pelennor Fields and doesn't enter the city until the city is ready for him to. He doesn't take mm-hmm. the take the throne. He lets them give themselves over to him. Yeah, there's that that great line about the city waking up in the morning as if from a dream. Like, wait, did we dream that the king came back? Because he's he's not here anymore. And right. that, that reminds me of the stories of where Jesus disappears from the crowds because the crowds are ready to make him king. But Jesus disappears from them because his hour has not yet come and his kingship won't be revealed until his crucifixion. Just like I think for Aragorn, his kingship isn't revealed until he uh, makes a sacrifice of himself at the Black Gate, or is at least prepared to do so. At the very mouth of hell, in the way that yes. the story is kind of constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, thank you for that. We um, we wanted to have you on because like, we were aware that um, Tolkien's Catholicism informed his work, but Norman and I are not Catholic. So yeah. <laughs> we wanted somebody who was uh, very well-versed, pardon the pun, in, in um, Catholicism. Oh. <laughs> well, I, so, I know a little bit about Catholicism. Yeah, I've read a, just a, book a little or bit. Two. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But thank you. Um, thank so. Thank you oh, for you're welcome. Me to come on the show. Um, oh, my but, pleasure. I love, I, I love Lord of the Rings. It's one one of my favorites. But we'll get into that later. I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, we're from the website duelinggenre.com. Um, you can check us out there and some of the other Dueling Genre podcasts. Um, and if you are so inclined and you haven't yet, um, we're, I don't know, 100, 190 minutes into the third movie. So, But you can support <laughs> us on Patreon. Um, and you can go access that from duelinggenre.com slash support. Um, you can also support. It's not just us. There's a bunch of other podcasts on yeah. the site. So uh, thank you if you are a patron. Um, thank you, Father, for coming on. Um, again my pleasure thank you for having me yeah and uh we'll be back tomorrow uh to talk more about lord of the rings bye bye